Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining today's show, How to Avoid Discrimination on Job Applications. I think this is a really important topic, something that we, we commonly, I think, overlook. So much of the focus in payroll and human resources and benefits uh, around compliance, uh, once someone is employed, the do's and don'ts, right? Um, but it really starts much further upstream than that in, in, in starting with the application itself. And there are some really, really clear do's and don'ts uh, uh, that, that have been put up by the EEOC and have been kind of known for a long time, but there's also some emerging trends in this area. So I, I think what we want to do today is kind of review what the EEOC guidelines are, uh, but also talk about you know things that uh, employers should be thinking about. Uh, and we're going to finish on eight critical questions that you really need to avoid on, on any application. And, have a great guest today. Uh, if you're a regular uh, watcher of the show, uh, you, you know Brian Chinker comes from uh, uh, the New York office of Jackson Lewis. Uh, 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 this is what he does does for a living. Uh, uh, Brian, welcome back to the show. We're looking forward to today's conversation. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here again. Uh, <clears throat> oh, certainly, okay. uh, certainly an interesting topic today, and uh, something like you said that's often not paid attention to the, the onboarding and you know applicant aspect. You know, there's so much focus on what to do during employment. So I, right. I think these will touch on issues that uh, sometimes aren't being given uh, too much consideration by employers. Yeah, right. Okay, let's, let's, let's just start off kind of defining if you could, uh, you know, what, what are protected class, maybe we even back up to the EOC. What is the EOC? How long has it been around and then Specifically, what are the protected classes that we need to be thinking about here? Sure, sure. So the EEOC is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. It's uh, the federal uh, enforcement agency for you know discrimination laws, and you know they handle uh, complaints regarding you know Title VII uh, and other discrimination statutes. Uh, of course, there's uh, you know every state. Uh, has you know some of their own laws and protected categories, uh, but at the federal level, you know this uh, you know the Title VII, the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADEA, the uh, American uh, the Age Discrimination and Employment Act, uh, those set the standard. And uh, you know so the protected categories that we're looking at uh, on the federal level are you know race and color, pregnancy, uh, sex which you know includes pregnancy, sexual orientation and gender identity as well as sexual harassment. Uh, you also have uh, national origin and citizenship, uh, religion and uh, and creed. And then like I mentioned under the ADEA that prohibits discrimination against uh, individuals who are older than 40 and the ADA uh, it makes it unlawful to discriminate based on a, a disability. Can can you maybe go a little more detail in so you know we'll, we'll repeat something we say on a regular basis here. The the purpose of this show is just to simply share the best HR compliance legal information we can with with uh, small mid sized businesses. This is not political. We don't lean left or right. But there's a couple of words that you put in there for protected classes that I you know carry a lot. They're kind of political lightning rods. Uh, um, what it is what what is it about being a protected class? So like. Uh, uh, you know, uh, race, pregnancy, those are really simple kind of kind of clear boundaries to understand, right? Things, there's emerging trends, obviously, uh, around gender identity. How, how do things like that come into play when it comes to protected class? 
Sure, sure. So, you know, we can start with the basic premise that, you know, an employer can take actions against employees, uh, whether it's a hiring decision, a promotion, a termination, you know, for, you know, any reason at all or, or no reason, right? Except, except there are certain protected categories that uh, a decision cannot be based on uh, someone's uh, inclusion in one of those protected categories. So, for instance, you know, race, right? If uh, an employment policy or decision is, you know, based on a racial classification, that's going to be something that's unlawful and can provide grounds uh, for suit. Uh, so, so that's what we're really looking at. That these are areas that uh, categories that shouldn't be considered uh, in employment decisions. Uh, but there are a couple. For instance, um, you know, pregnancy uh, and you know. Uh, disabilities and you know, also religion, where not only are do those prohibit you know, decisions based on, on those characteristics, but it also might require accommodations, reasonable accommodations to be given uh, for people within those categories. So to be clear, we're talking about hiring here. This is not the, uh, does the baker have to bake a cake for uh, overused probably scenario on, on TV about your place of business, your beliefs. This is nothing to do with that. This is simply, are you hiring employees based on these specific criteria? So if, this, if the skills required to perform a job are X, Y, and Z, X, Y, and Z can't include anything on the list that you just rattled off. That, that, is that a good way of thinking about it? Yeah, that's right. And I think what you're getting at are really what we'd call maybe the basic principles of equal employment opportunity, right? That, you know, applicants with equal qualifications and skills and abilities should be treated equally. Uh, and that an employer, you know, should be able to provide a valid business related uh, reason for an adverse decision or, you know, not hiring someone. Uh, and, and mainly that, you know, employment decisions based on, you know, stereotypes you know, those often lead to un unlawful results. Uh, I think that's kind of the, the basics of, of what we're getting at, especially in the, uh, the onboarding stage. Um, you know, not so much the retaliation issues and such that might be in play, you know, once someone's employed, but uh, essentially, you know, treating applicants as equal, you know, regardless of, uh, of these characteristics. Yeah, so, so maybe an example would be, you know, uh, you know, Hopefully, in most cases, a decades ago example of, uh, boy, this this job requires lifting a, a lot of heavy boxes, stacking pallets. We can only hire men. Um, changing the requirement to you have to be able to lift over 100 pounds, uh, uh, 100 times throughout an eight-hour day. Those kind of requirements, and it's not based on gender, right? Right, exactly. You're looking to see if someone can fulfill the job duties, not you know whether. Uh, you're not looking for specific uh, categories of people who can do that. You know, anyone who can, you know, perform uh, the job should be considered equally uh, with others, you know, who could perform it. Exactly. So, so these categories, most of these, you know, ADA, Title VII, uh, wage discrimination, most of these uh, federal laws go back decades, right? Um, what, what, are, what are, what if any? emerging trends like around the Crown Act, do you see, uh, uh, you know, maybe educate people at first what, what that is, but um, beyond just protected classes as people might think about them, what, what are some of the emerging trends? 
Sure, sure. Well, well, you mentioned one, the Crown Act, which uh, was just uh, recently passed by uh, the U.S. House of Representatives. And, uh, you know, that's going to the Senate. We'll, we'll see how it fares there. But uh, the Crown Act is uh, a measure that would protect employees from discrimination based on natural hairstyle and hairstyles that are associated with uh, certain races or national origins, right? These can be uh, hairstyles like, uh, you know, tightly, uh, you know, tightly coiled curls or, you know, hair worn in locks, uh, cornrows, twists, uh, you know, braids or afros. Those are the types of uh, hairstyles they protect, which, again, are, are tied to certain, you know, uh, uh, races and national origins. Uh, yeah. So it, it would prevent uh, employers from uh, refusing to hire, you know, based on, on those, uh, you know, that type of hairstyle. Uh, and that's something, you know, we've seen, you know, numerous, uh, you know, states look into that or localities uh, include similar uh, discrimination prohibitions. Uh, and look, also, you know, it's certainly important for employers to look at what their state covers as well, because there might be other protected categories. Uh, for instance, you know, since I'm in New York, I can think of a, a couple that are not uh, necessarily dealt with on the federal level. Uh, that we have here, such as uh, protections for domestic violence victims or, you know, those with prior arrest or conviction records. Uh, so, like I said, you know, the uh, these federal laws, Title Title VII, the ADA, ADA, they, they set the floor, uh, but, but, you know, states will go above and beyond this. And I think we're starting to see that trend reach the federal level with seeing the, uh, the Crown Act at some attention and, uh, you know, possibly get get passed into law a lot of things you and i have talked about in the show uh, in in past weeks uh brian is sometimes there's conflict between federal state local um lots of hr legislation moving to the states that is duplicative sometimes even local that can occasionally conflict with federal law this seems to be an area that is going that direction, but maybe not at the same pace as other type of HR, legis HR legislation. Is that how you see that? Right. I, I think so. And, you know, it, things at the federal level obviously move much slower. I, you know, uh, I, I think the last change we really had uh, before this, this Crown Act uh, legislation was uh, a few years ago, and this wasn't legislation, this was through the Supreme Court, uh, when the Supreme Court ruled in 2020 uh, that Title VII's, uh, you know, sex discrimination prohibition extended to sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, so, and again, that followed lots of uh, local and state laws that we saw, you know, out, uh, you know, prohibiting discrimination based on those. So, uh, I think, as is you know, typical in a lot of you know areas, uh, you know, once we see action at the local level, you know, it trickle it, it trickles up upstream, so to speak, uh, you know, to uh, to the federal level, uh, right. where they start considering these measures. Brian, I'm just thinking about uh, if I'm a small business uh, executive in mid-sized company watching today, um, we're going to get to the, the the list of eight don't do's, right? What are the things? Some of the things we should think about. We should do. I'm almost thinking about the inverse. So we, so we identified. You identified for us the protected classes, 
as identified in all those, uh, you know, Title VII, ADA, uh, Equal Employment, all the all the federal legislation. Um, and I, I don't, I suspect that's not a big surprise to people. But maybe the opportunity for most business owners is to is how how should we be thinking about the the job application? How should we be thinking about the interview process? And I'll even maybe move it upstream further than that to defining job requirements. Can can you speak into that? Uh, how employers should think about as before we even post the job, let alone take applicants, mm -hmm. how you should be defining job requirements uh, that really avoid any of these downstream issues and candidly might not even require you to know what the protected classes are. Sure, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I think one of the issues is, is that when we often think of discrimination, what comes to people's minds is the disparate treatment type of claim where there's intentional discrimination against someone based on on a category and you know many employers understand you know that's wrong that shouldn't be done uh, but what many employers don't understand or you know just haven't uh, seen is that there's another type of claim a disparate impact claim uh, where you know otherwise neutral policies that don't mention race uh, or other protected categories can have an impact on those protected categories. So I think, right, it, it's important that, you know, when, when you're drafting job duties, when you're drafting uh, policies for the company, that uh, companies consider, you know, whether what they're doing could have impact on, uh, you know, less uh, applicants of certain, uh, you know, protected categories applying or getting or getting the position uh, or you know promotional you know, uh, opportunities so uh, you know it, it's not just enough to say hey you know we're, we're not doing anything wrong we don't consider you know race or sex or disability when we're making decisions uh, you know companies should go a bit further and and make sure that they're not potentially inadvertently, uh, doing something that you know, has a disparate impact on people of a certain category. Yeah, I mean, we, we did a, a, a webinar maybe three, four weeks ago um, uh, where our, our, our guest, uh, you know, he was uh, uh, quadriplegic from the, from, from the neck down from a, a, an accident when he was 19 years old, right? And so uh, what a brilliant, inspiring uh, young man. He's a new father now, congratulations. Um, and in our discussion, I'm like, man, what companies are so missing the boat by not uh, tapping into a talent pool like like him. Um, but if your if your interview process requires people to come to your office and you're not even easily accessible, uh, or maybe it's posted on a website uh, that is not uh, uh, easily accessible for people, certain people with disabilities. Um, uh, it's all these kind of things that we just don't even think about, right? Right, right. There's certainly affirmative, proactive steps that companies can take to widen, you know, the, the applicant pool to include, uh, you know, people, <clears throat> for instance, like you mentioned, with, with disabilities who might otherwise uh, be dis be excluded from from the advertisements. I mean, I think at a minimum, right, advertisement should have an EEO statement uh, saying that, you know, uh, that hiring decisions will, you know, are not based on any of these, you know, protected categories, but yeah, they, they can certainly go further and make sure you're advertising uh, 
for positions in, you know, that'll reach people of certain categories that might not otherwise, uh, you know, be hired by your company. So, uh, yeah, there are certainly things that can be done there. Uh, you know, in terms of disabilities, you know, even in the hiring process and the interviewing process, there are steps that can and likely should be taken to accommodate people with uh, with disabilities. For instance, if we're talking about a uh, an interview process that you know involves a, a timed test or uh, you know performing some physical activity uh, that might be related to the job, you know it might be appropriate for a company if they you know if there's something visible uh, that makes it you know very clear that this person may have a disability to say. You know, is there an accommodation we can provide for this test or for this activity? Is there any accommodation you would need? Again, we'll get into that a little bit later. You're not going to ask at the that uh, at that interview stage any information about what their disability is, the severity, or you know what it actually is. But uh, it is okay to offer someone uh, you know an accommodation even at the hiring stage, right? Someone who might not have uh, you know, use of one of their hands or, you know, ha has limited factors there if they need to write uh, as part of the application, right? Then, you know, the, the hiring individual can say, you know, is there an accommodation I can provide that that'll make this easier for you? Uh, so certainly, it, you know, it's not just sitting back and making sure nothing is being done as to these protected categories. There's certainly an element of uh, proactiveness that, you know, you can try to get people of these, uh, you know, make positions available to these uh, uh, people of certain categories that might not otherwise, uh, you know, view your ads or, you know, come in for an interview. Right. I think I think the guidance we prob would probably give uh, employers listening today is uh, obviously you, you know, ignorance of the law is no excuse. And we, and we certainly don't condone any type of, of, of intentional discrimination. I, I think the safest way to avoid it and there's so many other downstream benefits is just to get really really clear job descriptions and 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 really think through what the actual skills and be skills required and behaviors that you want and need to perform the job because when you do that it really sets up applications and interview processes that are completely it, it helps you to avoid any of the EEOC protected class kind of kind of issues we're talking about today, but it also totally sets up job performance, right? And, and communication and and and, uh, and uh, job reviews, uh, performance reviews. Uh, uh, if performance isn't what is expected to be, you're always mapping back to those skills and behaviors you identified up front, uh, and just avoiding any downstream misunderstandings, mis miscommunications. And any other guidance you'd want to give uh, employers on what are the protected classes? What are the what are the what are the trends here before we talk about enforcement? Uh, well, I, I think just to pick up on, on on what you last stated is that you know having written policies, having written job descriptions, right? That's a start, and then what you, what do you do from there? You you apply those uniformly. Right. Uh, you apply and enforce everything in an equal manner and you show that by documentation. And, you know, again, you know, as I mentioned, even standards that appear neutral can be discriminatory if they have you know, an impact on certain protected categories. So that's always 
something to be aware of. But, you know, simply, you know, have policies that you apply consistently. And, you know, that's really, you know, getting you, you know, pretty far in, the, in, in compliance just by doing that. Yeah. Okay. Brian, let's move on to, to, to the next topic here. And it's around enforcement. Um, you know, we've we've had prior conversations in the show about you know if I've got an if if I got an employee who is disgruntled, they think they should have been uh, 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 a non-exempt employee and therefore uh, entitled to some overtime, and they report that to uh, Department of Labor and there's audits and there's this whole legal process for that, right? What is the what is the enforcement? Uh, so we know EOC is the enforcement agency. But what does the enforcement process look like? How, how, how do these things usually surface? And then what are what are the potential consequences for employers if they get it wrong? Sure. So at the federal level, right, the EEOC handles enforcement. So if someone is looking to bring a Title VII discrimination claim, right, that would be many of the top of the uh, categories we discussed above uh, previously, you know, race, sex, uh, you know, national origin. Uh, pregnancy, religion, creed, uh, they're going to have to first file a complaint with the EEOC. And that'll be at whatever their local office is. And the EEOC will take that uh, complaint and they'll, they'll provide notice to the employer that there's been a complaint made and provide a copy of that. And uh, typically what happens then is uh, the employer is asked to provide a position statement and you know, to respond to you know what the allegations of discrimination are uh, at that point or sometimes even before that point uh, you know the EEOC might uh, ask the parties if they're willing to discuss a settlement and you know the EEOC can uh, hold a, a settlement conference to resolve things uh, if things don't resolve early on at that stage then there are likely two outcomes uh, one would be the employee or the employee's attorney, uh, would request what's called a right to sue letter. And uh, that's a, a letter that will uh, the EEOC will issue, uh, basically stating that the employee has uh, a certain period of time to go file uh, a federal complaint in, in federal court, uh, you know, with respect to those claims. You know, alternatively, when there's some very egregious conduct uh, or it, you know, the discrimination claim hits on an area that the EOC is uh, really focusing on. Uh, the EOC can decide to enforce it themselves, and the EOC, you know, can conduct an investigation. And then, if they feel uh, it's appropriate, they they can file, uh, you know, a complaint in court uh, and, and go after the employer. So, you know, sometimes we see. Uh, settlements made with the EEOC. Sometimes it gets kicked out of the EEOC and goes uh, goes the private route to court. And I, I should just mention that obviously there's a whole state and local network uh, as well. Uh, many states, uh, if not all, have state divisions of uh, of human rights you know, under that name or, or others, uh, where you know state discrimination uh, claims can be brought either the same uh, categories under, you know, Title uh, Seven and the ADA and the ADA, or you know, the others that are categories that might be specifically uh, prohibited in that state. Uh, and, and same with localities. So for New York, for instance, we have the New York 
Division of Human Rights that accepts complaints. And we also, the, uh, you know, in New York City, for instance, the New York City uh, Commission of Human Rights. Uh, and those can act similarly. They investigate claims. And uh, again, you know, claims can be brought in court or they can be brought, you know, within those agencies. Um, so right. what do you see as the most common path? Uh, <clears throat> do, do employees or prospective employees who feel uh, uh, that they've received prejudicial uh, uh, treatment, they've been discriminated against, do do they normally go through their state uh, enforcement agency or go right to the EOC? Or is it more common that they just simply contact a local attorney and this thing just goes right into uh, a, a suit is being filed in either settled out of court or in court? You know, it, it really runs the gamut because what I often see is even if an employee or applicant will hire an attorney, uh, that attorney might still make a filing at the EEOC or the state division. Uh, one of the benefits that an employee gets in doing that is uh, that once they make that filing with the federal or state agency, typically a response is required from the employer in which, you know, we, we call it a position statement. You know, the employer is, you know, responding uh, to the allegations and, you know, providing you know, the employer's side of what happened. And so the benefit to the employee and their attorney is that if they go to one of these agencies, they likely get to see the employer's uh, side and the employer's position uh, before they would go forward and, and make a court filing. Uh, so it, it's, it's really a mix. Uh, you know, what I can say is that, especially uh, due to the pandemic uh, slowing things down, that uh, you know, the EEOC or, you know, the state divisions may be uh, a little bit slower in, in handling things. But, but again, you know, in terms of filing a, a federal uh, Title VII claim, you know, it's a prerequisite to go to the EEOC. So uh, some employees might choose to just, you know, file under their state or local laws uh, so that they can get to court. Uh, right away, instead of you know filing with the EOC and waiting to get that uh, that right to sue letter. Yeah, and I, I certainly haven't seen you know probably a fraction of these compared to you. This is what you do for a living, but um, it, it, my experience is more common than, than not. Uh, it's the uh, employee who feels discriminated against. Uh, it's it's their attorney who is who is performing these actions on their behalf so and i think maybe the reason i even bring that up is uh one of the things i think we face in uh in i'll call the umbrella of hr uh especially in small and mid-sized companies that don't have big hr staffs filled with uh sherm certified uh hr professionals <clears throat> there's this uh oh i know my staff uh this will never happen to me um uh, uh kind of thing and just assuming oh so and so is never going to go no, none of my employees would ever go to the eoc eoc they wouldn't even know how to do that well they don't have to know how all they have to do is pick up the phone and in google a uh, lawyer near me and uh whether you're right or whether you're wrong whether you are discriminating whether you're not discriminating doesn't matter if the if the, if the uh, uh, employee uh, has a case or not have a case, you are in, now in a position to, with, with a cost and effort to defend. I, I, am I saying that right? I, I think so. And I, I think probably 
what what stems from what you're saying is that you know really companies should try <laughs> the best they can to resolve these types of issues internally and that's why i think it's so important to have uh a reporting system uh for internal complaints that actually works right one that's you know you know actually going to you know conduct an investigation and you know involve the employee let them know their complaint is being taken seriously if that's a culture and a policy a written policy you know that's established by by a company then you know they can often you know, find out about these complaints and take appropriate action beforehand, uh, before it gets out of control and becomes, you know, one, uh, you know, an actual legal claim, you know, filed with the EEOC. Uh, so I, I think that's, you know, really important uh, to do. And, and you know, oftentimes uh, in, in litigation, you know, it comes out, you know, how the employee, uh, you know, found their attorney or, or why they went to them. And, you know, sometimes it's because, you know, no one at the company was listening. Uh, other times it's as simple as, you know, there, there was a small issue. Maybe it was just an issue of uh, on a paycheck uh, of a couple hundred dollars that the company didn't have a procedure to deal with or they just ignored. And then that employee goes to an attorney and what do they know? Not only is it a $200 issue, but there's a discrimination claim. There's you know, an overtime claim and, and something that the company could have resolved internally for, you know, a very small amount now becomes a full blown litigation with additional claims. Uh, so having, you know, a reporting mechanism, uh, which I, I often advise companies to have multiple people that, you know, discrimination complaints can be made to so that, you know, if that one person is involved in the discrimination, there's someone else they can go to. You know, some companies have have hotlines. Uh, again, this might not be so applicable to applicants because they're not getting that information yet. Uh, but it's certainly something as it relates to the filing of EEO complaints uh, that companies should consider. Yeah, we're definitely wading into uh, 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 waters of when someone is employed. But I, I think it does speak to the further upstream you can address the problem, the better, right? Start with great uh, uh, job descriptions that lead to great applications, that lead to great uh, interview questions, uh, and don't get you in this trouble downstream. So uh, the best way to solve a problem is to create a process that uh, the problem never exists in the first place, right? Any, anything else you'd want to say on, on enforcement? Um, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to unnaturally scare employers here. But um, what kind of money would someone be looking at just as a simple cost to defend a case? What kind of money would we be looking at in penalties from the EOC for a violation? Right. <clears throat> so, so in terms of the cost to defend a case, you know, that, that can be, you know, ranged from a very small amount. If, you know, upon receiving a complaint, the company looks into resolving it right away and does so. Uh, obviously, there's the amount that they, they resolve it for. Uh, but, you know, if a company is going to fight these uh, claims and litigate them, then they need to consider that, you know, they are going to pay both their attorneys. And if they lose, if the employee prevails uh, under these statutes, they're, they're entitled to their own attorney's fees. Uh, so that's something where, you know, the longer uh, a company fights, uh, the, the more 
uh, the more potential there is for a large sum being owed. Uh, you know, talking about large sums, I think uh, was it about a year ago that the EEOC had its uh, largest uh, settlement ever, I believe, of about 20 and a half, 20 million uh, 500 about. And, and this was uh, a company that uh, just had uh, real systemic issues with respect to uh, uh, race, discrimination against African-American employees and sexual harassment. Uh, the, the investigation turn, uh, uh, showed that basically, you know, African American employees were not being promoted uh, equal to others, and that the, even when they were, or you know, in whatever positions they were in, they were being paid less uh, than than other you know non-African American employees, and that there was also rampant sexual harassment. Uh, and further, you know, just as, as a kicker, right? They they retaliated against uh, those who had complained. Um, so, you know, there, there are large ones. And again, you know, not to scare anyone, but that, you know, that's the very high end. Uh, but, you know, as we get, discuss, you know, what damages are available, uh, there, there certainly are a variety of different uh, issues, right? Even if an employee uh, doesn't get, you know, uh, you know if, if an applicant's discriminated against and, you know, they end up finding a new position somewhere else within weeks, Right, their their economic damages might not be that much because they've found replacement employment, but depending on you know what occurred, you know they could have uh, compensatory damages uh, or as you know they're probably more commonly known you know emotional distress damages uh, of a significant amount. Uh, you know here in the uh, here in New York, there's uh, there are two types of uh, of emotional distress damages, and you know, some some courts throughout the country do it uh, look at it this way, and and some look at it a little differently. But here it's split into two categories. There's garden variety, uh, you know, emotional distress, which is where uh, you know an employee just can basically say, you know, I, I've suffered discriminatory conduct, and therefore. You know, I've suffered humiliation, <laughs> embarrassment, anguish, sleeplessness. Uh, that doesn't require you know anything in terms of medical uh, documentation, and those awards can be as high as one hundred and twenty-five thousand uh, dollars for that type of uh, emotional distress. And then, if the employee can actually show that you know they sought medical treatment, right? Maybe uh, uh, for depression, or if there were actually you know physical manifestations uh, of you know this uh, the stress that that was caused by the discrimination, you know, they can obtain an emotional distress award. You know, going far beyond that that 125. Uh, so you know th there are damages here that uh, that look frankly they should they should to some extent scare employers because. Those are amounts that you know no company wants to pay out of their hard-earned uh, you know uh, revenue that you know that has been earned. So uh, that's why it's so important to uh, you know comply with the law and and do what's required <laughs> to treat people equally, uh, so that there isn't this type of uh, exposure down the line. Yeah, and there and there's this twisted reality that it's the smallest companies that have the least resources. That would have the most devastating impact because that you know you're giving an example of a uh, one employee filing suit uh, in uh, in in what the damages might uh, might be you know if you're a 50 person company or a 100 person company maybe you can absorb that if you're a 
five person company and you're working on razor thin margins trying to survive and, and build a business, I mean, one case could could close the doors, right? So uh, the the risk is is real, uh, and ironically, it's uh, it's most real probably for those least equipped to to deal with it. Thus, the reason for uh, conversations just like the one we're having right now to to educate, make sure we're addressing this these issues as far upstream as possible. Exactly, and you know, fortunately for smaller employers, you know, under Title Seven. Uh, there are caps on the amount of, you know, emotional distress and punitive damages. Uh, however, you know, for, you know, employers under 100, that could be, you know, $50,000. Uh, you know, those between 101 and 200, 100,000. So there's, you know, escalating provisions, but that's not necessarily uh, contained in, you know, similar state and local laws. Right. Okay. Um, let's, let's, let's go on to the, some of the concrete dotes. Uh, I'm looking at the clock here. Um, uh, it, 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 I think this is really actionable for folks. So we've, we've kind of identified eight critical questions to avoid asking, and, and it says on the job application, but it, it goes for the interview process as well, right? Sure, sure. Uh, uh Brian, I, I'm just going to hand the reins to you. Why don't you just take us through the eight? Sure. So I, I think the first one uh, we'll discuss is our questions about previous convictions. Uh, these are so-called, you know, ban the box uh, laws that prohibit companies about uh, from asking the candidates about arrest or conviction records uh, at certain points in the application process. Uh, so, you know, for instance, you know, in in Washington State, there's the law that prohibits advertisements that state they exclude uh, you know felons or you know state no criminal background right because those might dissuade people from with, with criminal backgrounds from applying uh it all that law also prohibits uh questions about a criminal uh background either you know verbally or in writing um you know until they the the companies determine that the applicant is qualified for the position uh, there are other laws like in California, New York City that that go even farther uh, and don't allow any inquiry into a criminal conviction until after a conditional offer of employment has been made. Uh, and so, you know, therefore, you know, what these laws would say, you, you can't put any question on the application uh, or, you know, obtain information uh, about uh, criminal conviction. Now, you know, it's important to know what your jurisdiction may require because, you know, some uh, some of these laws may permit a, co a company from looking into public sources, right? You know, criminal dockets, you know, can be publicly available. So some may allow an employer to do that. But for instance, uh, you know, I know that uh, I believe California and New York City don't allow that, don't allow the employer to even, you know, look into those areas. Um, you know, and I can tell you from experience, you know, there are, uh, you know, individuals out there who are just trolling the uh, the job boards in these jurisdictions, and they will find advertisements that say something improper about, you know, clean record or something like that. Uh, they won't even apply, and then they will file a a, uh, a complaint with, you know, a state or local, uh, you know, div division of human rights and. Uh, I, you know, I've 
had a number of those and, and it's difficult right because that is a violation of the law and and so you know there are people you know who are out there trying to uh you know enforce these even outside of you know the uh the, the government agencies that do so um, Brian, so so it seems you know self-evident why someone would want to ask that question you know you want employees who are Good, good, honest souls of the uh, you know, stand-up citizens, right? What if you can't ask that question? What questions should they be asking to try to mine for those values in 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 those competencies and skills? Right, uh, you know, great question, and you know, really, the company should be asking you know job-related questions, right, about the the skills and qualifications, and understandably, a, a criminal background, a, a criminal conviction. Uh, you know, can be a concern. And so, you know, these laws are not saying that you cannot look at that at any time. Uh, it's just, you know, at, at a point, typically once you've determined that that applicant is qualified or, you know, will be offered the job. Uh, but even then, you know, some of the laws even go so far as to require a certain analysis to be done that, you know, you know, for instance, you know, if you're hiring, uh, a truck driver who's not going to have, you know, handle any cash or any, you know, money for the business and that, you know, they have some conviction for uh, some financial, you know, crime. You know, is that something that would disqualify that applicant for that job? Likely not. It's, it's not job related. You know, what concern really is there based on that? Uh, and so, you know, there are laws that that require uh, companies to go through a step-by-step -step analysis to determine things like, uh, you know, how long ago was the conviction? Uh, is there any record of, you know, re rehabilitation or, you know, good behavior since then? You know, how old was the individual at the time of the offense? Uh, you know, does the offense bear on any of the duties of this job? So, you know, my, my recommendation still to, to employers would be you know, even if you get to the stage where you are conducting that criminal background check and something comes up, uh, you know, that shouldn't just, you know, companies just shouldn't have a, uh, you know, a blanket policy that a conviction disqualifies that, that applicant from a job. Uh, they should look into those factors to determine if it's, you know, actually relevant to, to what this employee will be doing. All right, that's, that's good guidance. I'm going to move us along. Let's talk, take the next one. Talking about salary history, this is this is an interesting one for me. Sure, sure. So you know, salary history and you know, bans on asking employees about their salary history uh, are you know really go under the rationale of you know if there was you know prior discrimination against this this applicant uh, that artificially lowered their their salary because, for instance, you know uh, their you know, it's their sex or their race or, or what, what have you, that, you know, relying on that past salary history only perpetuates the discrimination that's been suffered. Uh, so, you know, there, there are a number of, uh, of states uh, and jurisdictions that, that, you know, ban, you know, salary history uh, inquiries. And so, uh, you know, really what I suggest to employers, even in jurisdictions uh, where they they don't have one of these laws is that they still don't look into salary history. Uh, I think you know a best practice is to really you know have a company that 
you know, you set your own pay scales for each position. So obviously the, the first part is, you know, understand your state and local laws in this area. Uh, and, you know, even, even if one doesn't apply, you know, understand common provisions, right? Some prohibit uh, inquiries into the salary history. Others prohibit the inquiry and then use of, of the salary history. Uh, you know, and, and some, some of them, you know, have, you know, pr provisions where even if the applicant voluntarily provides you that information, you still can't consider it, which obviously is a hard one to, to you know, to prove you're not considering it. But, you know, that's why I think there, there is a need to have a documented pay scale uh, for each position, right? That should probably go hand in hand with, with the job description. And, you know, that's not to say everyone who gets hired gets paid the same exact rate, uh, but that the company should consider, you know, legitimate factors such as, you know, years of experience or, you know, other, you know, or level of uh, education, right? If someone has a higher degree, that, that might be a reason to pay someone more. Uh, but, you know, those are the more legitimate type of factors to look at rather than, you know, something so arbitrary as, you know, what they what they were earning in, the, in their prior position. Uh, yeah. And so this is one where I think managers really need to be trained on this uh, because, you know, even if you're not asking for this on an application, you know, it, it's something that can easily come up during an interview. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, certainly, you know, removing it from the application, right, uh, train those interviewers not to ask about it. You know, th those are simple things. And uh, again, I, I think those are best practices along with, you know, having that pay scale for each position uh, that would really avoid the need to even ask for someone's salary history. Uh, yeah. And that is to say, you know, you can ask, you know, what would you like to make, right? That, that's, not, that's not a prohibited question. And that's probably a better one, right? What, what, what's the minimum salary you're looking for? You know, what's the range you're looking for? Uh, right. th those are probably better questions to ask. Right. And if, and if you're, if you're, if you're, I can think of two reasons that you'd want to ask, right? Number one is you, you're trying to size what, what it is that you would need to pay this person should you hire them, right? So that's, that's a legitimate question. There's also another avenue of you're wanting to test are they a high performer? Are they a, are they a high performing employee in their current role? And if you're making X, oh, that's validation of that. So, it, it, but you can't ask the question, how much do you make? You got to find other ways to, to ask it, right? Uh, uh, find ways for them to demonstrate that they are a high performer, whether it's a salesperson's stack rankings or someone's asking about what the feedback they got from their boss in their last job review, other other ways to explore uh, their their current job performance. Any gui other guidance you'd give there, Brian? No, I, I think that's right. There, there are likely other factors you can look at. And again, look, if, if an employer is in a jurisdiction that doesn't prohibit this, you know, that's fine. They can ask these, but, you know, these questions about salary history. But I think employers should be cognizant that, you know, there is a reason for these prohibitions and that, you know, it, even unintentionally, that employer could very well be, you know, continuing, you know, uh, you know a, a discriminatory, uh, you know, act of a prior employer in, in keeping someone's salary low. So, you know, that might be reason enough for, for employers not to, you know, want to get into that, even though there might be, 
know, a, a business reason, as you suggested. Yeah. All right. Prior convictions and in, in the, the salary history are probably two of the hottest lightning rod topics of the eight. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you accelerate through the remaining six. Uh, tell, sure. tell us about age. Sure. So, you know, there age is typically not something we want to find out about, you know, at the at the hiring stage. Right. It's it's not necessarily unlawful to ask someone, you know, how old they are or their birth date or year of graduation. Right. All of those, you know, uh, even if you're not asking for the age can give you a sense of someone's age. Uh, but certainly knowing someone's age can lead to uh, a decision that's made for unlawful reasons that violate you know, the ADEA or, or local law. Uh, so, you know, it, it can really cast doubt on what that what that information is being used for, uh, because really, you know, unless there's uh, a bona fide reason for knowing someone's age. Right. So, for instance, you know, on some job applications. Right. We're going to have, are you, you know, over the 18 years of age, right? That's something that in many jurisdictions is important because, you know, 18 or 21, there's certain uh, laws concerning, uh, you know, hours and, and certain things that must be done for, uh, you know, minors. So, you know, that type of information might be fine, but, you know, there's there's no need for that, that date of birth. And, you know, going back to what we just discussed, uh, you know, a criminal background check. You know, I, I know employers will say, but I need to get a date of birth typically uh, to run that background check. And that's absolutely true. And so, you know, a suggestion there would be, number one, you know, make that that criminal background check authorization uh, separate from the employment application. Right. Make it clear that it's that that information is being sought for something unrelated. Uh, additionally, as might be required in some jurisdictions and others not, the, you know, running the criminal background check later in the uh, hiring process uh, can avoid these issues too, right? So if, you've, uh, if the company has determined that someone's a qualified applicant and then they're running this, uh, this criminal background check and getting the date of birth, you know, that, that's different than, you know, asking it for that, you know, date of birth on the criminal background uh, authorization upfront for every applicant, even yeah. for something that you might not end up running a, a background check. For. Yeah. So, so even if it's unintentional, you could be, by having age, date of birth on an application, you, you could be signaling that, hey, I only want younger people or I only want older people. Um, even if that's not true, you're really just setting yourself up, especially for these people you're talking about, Brian, who are who are trolling, looking for to be opportunistic and, and sue you and uh, get an out-of-court settlement for just ultimately making a stupid mistake, right? Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. And, you know, I, I think this even goes beyond things that are on the application. I, you know, I... I I have many clients who have come to me uh, where you know, they've they've conducted an interview, you know, gone through the application process, and then you know someone in the, as part of the hiring team looked up the applicant on social media, right? They did a Google search or they went on Facebook or you know looked to uh, Twitter to see posts. And the problem there is that uh, you often learn things that you shouldn't know, right? So even if you haven't asked for age now you've looked at their facebook and you know maybe you just saw a you know 60th birthday party photo now now you've learned their age maybe you've uh seen that you know they're you know found that information about their 
you know, sexual orientation. And those are things while, you know, at the outset might be, you know, you know, the applicant might not be aware of, but, you know, those are things where they can, you know, if that came out in a subsequent litigation or, you know, at any time, those are things that can cast doubt onto whether uh, the employer was actually using you know, legitimate job related uh, factors in making their hiring decision rather than, you know, relying on, you know, those other issue types of things that might fall under protected categories uh, that they might have, you know, found, you know, scrolling through, uh, you know, Google search or on Facebook. Right, right. All right. I am looking at the clock here. I, I, I keep breaking my promise. We're going to accelerate. So we talked, uh, talked conviction, history, uh, salary history, uh, age. Uh, let's uh, real quickly, citizenship, uh, pregnancy, religion, uh, uh, alcohol, tobacco usage. And what else do we have here? Sure. Uh, right. I think we already kind of hit on disabilities. But go, yep. sure. So, sure. So I'll fly through citizenship here. So again, you know, this is, uh, you know, someone's citizenship status is something that should never be asked about on, on an application or even verbally, right? You know, the only question that should ever be asked, uh, and again, I would recommend this is in writing because, you know, verbally things can be uh, spoken in the wrong way, but, you know, they, they should be asked whether they're authorized to work uh in the united states and that's all that needs to be asked because the you know the issue is going to be if they are hired they're going to have to fill out the form i-9 which will establish their uh identity and their authorization to work in the united states and so there's no need to go beyond that right there's no need to find out if someone's a citizen because that's not what's required to, to work in the U.S. to be a citizen. You can have uh, various types of uh, authorization to work uh, for, for non-citizens. So any type of pre-screening, even if you're you know, getting into the I-9 issues, right, there's no reason that you know, the I-9 information should ever be requested before a job offer is made. Uh, that will often be viewed as discriminatory uh, based on citizenship or immigration status. Yeah, and, and our guidance here to employers, I mean, the, the fact that people put it on doesn't mean you're some xenophobe who who is intentionally trying to filter out uh, non-U.S. citizens. You probably just legitimately think, hey, hey they got to be able to work here legally. Just frame the question that way. Are you are you authorized to work legally? Because they, they can be have a student visa, they can have a green card, they can be a spouse. There, there's a whole bunch of really good legal reasons why great talent uh, uh, is is authorized to work, but they're not a U.S. citizen. So, all right, uh, religious uh, holidays. Sure, sure. So religious holidays, you know, that's one where you know applicant, uh, you know, questions that get into an applicant's you know religious beliefs can be problematic. Uh, you know, for instance, you know, you're getting it, you, you know, if you're asking specific days, uh, you know, that the person can work and then, you know, basing an employment decision based on that, you know, that that can be discriminatory because, you know, religious uh, accommodations are often required. So, you know, if someone, for instance, can't work on you know, Friday nights or Saturdays, that's something that might require an employer to provide an accommodation for. 
and isn't necessarily grounds for a, a termination. So, you know, there, I mean, look, there are exemptions for certain religious uh, organizations on this, but unless you fall within one of those, you know, this is probably something to stay away from. Uh, certainly asking about religious holidays and even asking about specific days that they can work can, can then lead to these types of issues as well. Yeah, and I, I, I think in the context of an application, you know, this is the kind of thing you got to work out maybe downstream, right? I mean, if if the if this person says I can't work on Sundays, but they're applying to be an NFL referee, the job is on Sundays, right? There, it doesn't doesn't mean you have to hire people who can't work on and make give unreasonable accommodations. This is simply the application process. Uh, you, I, I think you're just putting a target on your back by I mean, you are you are implying a bunch of bad things about your hiring practices, whether they're true or not, by simply asking this question. Is that a fair way to think about it, Brian? Exactly. And a, and a lot of this is appearances, right? Even if you're asking something that's not, you know, unlawful to ask about, if it's something that raises an issue, you know, for someone and then they don't get the job, you know, they very well might assume that that's why they were not given the job. Then you're in the position of having to defend your hiring process. Uh, so it's better to just, you know, leave those things out. Okay. All right, I skipped over pregnancy. Talk about the pregnancy children marital status. Sure, sure. So, you know, pregnancy, you know, really, you know, hiring managers, this is often where it comes up because Pretty much, you know, no job application should be asking about, you know, pregnancy or children. But oftentimes, you know, hiring managers are, you know, you're having a conversation with someone and, you know, topics come up. But these are ones that you really want to avoid. Um, you know, I, I think that along with pregnancy, right, the, you know, whether you have children, you know, even a simple question asking a woman, do you prefer to be called Mrs. or Miss? Right now, now you're trying to get uh, you know the implication of whether you know she's she's married or not, and that could be used to you know discriminate against you know someone based on you know familial status. Uh, so you really want to avoid those questions. And, and look, you know questions that you're going to ask of women should be the same questions you ask of men. So you know you shouldn't be asking women if they're pregnant, right? Because you're not asking men those same questions. Uh, and, and so, you know, I mean, I, I know that I have one example of an EEOC, EEOC complaint where, you know, an offer was made to an entry level uh, uh, woman. You know, she she called back to accept it. And on that acceptance call, she said, you know, I just also wanted to inquire about your maternity benefits. Half an hour later, they called her back and rescinded the job offer. No. What happened next? A hundred thousand dollar EEOC settlement with all sorts of injunctive relief requiring uh, training at the employer's cost, uh, you know, all, all sorts of, you know, policies having to be distributed. Uh, so, you know, that's something a bit blatant, but again, you know, those types of questions, just that there's no reason to get into it uh, because, it, you know, there's no legitimate, you know, reason that you'd use, you know, a, that information, right? Someone, whether someone's married or pregnant or has children, there's no reason you need that for in the hiring process. Right. It, it, we keep repeating it, but it goes back to have a great job description and, and and then have your applications and your interview process mining for only those skills and behaviors required to perform the job, right? Exactly. All right. Uh, alcohol and tobacco usage. This is a this is one maybe people don't think about. Yeah, this is interesting. And and really, you know, just 
you know, to start off, companies should look into their jurisdiction because some states will allow, you know, ban, you know, allow a company not to hire someone based on, you know, nicotine usage. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, there are states, you know, Washington, Texas, Pennsylvania, uh, Massachusetts, name a few where, uh, you know, you can ask applicants about uh, that, that type of usage. And, uh, you know, again, look, it's a laudable goal to, you know, want a healthier workforce, you know, that can have impacts on, you know, insurance rates. Uh, but there are also many other states, more than half of the states, that protect employees uh, from adverse employment actions uh, based on their off-duty activities. So again, no one's uh, saying that a company, you know, cannot prohibit employees from, you know, smoking or vaping on premises. The issue is asking an applicant if they smoke, you know, and that, you know, for instance, you know, New York, California, many other states, you know, will will ban these types of questions either banning them specifically as to nicotine usage or just generally as to off-duty activities. Uh, and again, you know, getting into the alcohol usage, you know, that that's problematic because, you know, alcoholism can be a disability under the ADA. And if you're asking at the pre-offer stage about, you know, their use of alcohol, you're really opening up that line of uh, questioning and, you know, disclosure of information about, you know, someone's frequency and, uh, you know, quantity of alcohol intake can can lead to uh, a potential, you know, disability discrimination claim. Yeah. And if you're if you're trying to mine for will this person show up to work and be productive, um, you know, exclude it from the application, but develop mature interview questions that you properly mine for those skills and those behaviors that that you are able to, to 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 find out whether they do show up on time, whether they do come to work, whether they are productive, uh, without having to e extrapolate some you know extra extrapolate uh, probably relatively inaccurately what their job performance would be uh, based on the use of a substance, right? Exactly. Right. And yeah, and I so you can ask them if they've gotten trouble previously for violating an employer's you know, policies. Uh, but you want to stay away likely from from these direct questions, especially if you're in you know, one of the uh, 29 states that that would you know, find it unlawful. All right. Number eight, uh, disabilities. This is uh, this is kind of a, a, a softball here. Yeah, yeah. So this is one where you know, employers are generally prohibited from asking questions about disabilities uh, before making a job offer. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, if during the interview process, uh, you know, the, the employer reasonably believes that there's an accommodation that's needed as part of that interview process, then, you know, that can be offered. Uh, but, you know, as part of the interview process, like in the instance of taking a test or, you know, lifting up and carrying something heavy or, you know, reaching up high, uh, you know, those can be offered if it's obvious to the employer that an accommodation might be needed. But again, the employer is not asking about the actual disability. Uh, and so, right, we're never asking about the nature or severity of that pre-offer. Uh, and so, uh, you know, again, you know, even if there, you know, if we're just sitting there having a conversation and you know no accommodation would be needed for that then this topic should really be off limits 
Uh, and you know, let's remember the onus is generally on the employee or the applicant to request a reasonable accommodation, right? Then we get into that interactive process, which by the way, you know, should be documented. Uh, but you know, typically, you know, we're we're looking at the to the employee to you know give a disclosure of information that that would lead us to you know offer an accommodation. But you know, there that really uh, by and large should not be uh, addressed at the you know pre pre hiring stage. Yeah, and and I guess uh, deviate just slightly, but. In, in, in the current climate of unemployment and job participation rates, um, and maybe not everybody listening today uh, is deep in the war for talent, but a, a huge percentage of, of us are. Um, uh, you know, when I just, in, in my hometown, almost every single restaurant has diminished hours because they can't find staff, right? The war for talent is no longer some, uh, uh, you know, uh, large enterprise thinkery topic. This is this has come to Main Street, um, and so when when you're searching for talent, you you have to think about making accommodations to tap into larger talent pools, right? So uh, beyond just omitting this from a job application, I would encourage everybody to really think about. <clears throat> Do I really have to be, have people come into an office? Can I be more virtual? Um, <clears throat> what if I made certain accommodations to the way some jobs are performed, including access to my building and, 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 and office uh, in the tools that I supply? Does that open up new avenues of talent pools that I can tap into? So uh, I, I think following the law and, and doing the right thing here to avoid any legal consequence also coincidentally maps perfectly to a great modern talent strategy. So Brian, uh, as always, really enjoy our conversations. Uh, uh, an hour goes by super fast with you. Uh, and, I, and I get smarter every time I talk to you. Uh, can you maybe just spend you know 20 seconds telling everybody about Jackson Lewis and, and what it is that you guys do? Sure, sure. So I'm uh, an employment attorney at Jackson Lewis. We're a uh, nationwide uh, law firm with over 60 offices throughout the U.S. Uh, we focus exclusively on labor and employment law and representing employers in all aspects of the employer-employee relationship. And I would say that uh, Assure relies on Jackson Lewis. Certainly, we provide our own frontline uh, HR services. Uh, but when we have the real hairy issues, we we rely on Jackson Lewis as our as our uh, uh, call it tier three uh, support to, to answer the tough questions. Uh, and they're also a supplier of compliance content. So if you check out assuresoftware.com forward slash blog, uh, you'll see a bunch of compliance content uh, where uh, they're helping us inform you of all of the changes uh, uh, in, in HR legislation that are impacting small and mid-sized businesses. Uh, so to keep up on the latest information, I would encourage you to tap in that resource. Uh, everything we talked through today, uh, uh, it, it's the iron, the twisted iron here is the companies that have the least resources to deal with these issues uh, are the ones that are most vulnerable, right? And these are small, mid-sized, growing companies. Big companies, they have big HR staffs of, of SHRM certified uh, professionals. It's the smaller companies that they don't know what they don't know. In uh, uh, and, and hiring a 75 or an 85, $100,000 a year uh, dedicated HR person just isn't feasible for them. 
and, and that's where we come in. So we have three different levels of HR support uh, where we can be uh, your responsive uh, 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 call center support for just your managers at an absolute fraction, a fraction of a fraction of the cost of hiring uh, full-time uh, HR staff. We can uh, be proactive with your managers helping uh, do more than just simply write employee handbooks, but job descriptions and leaning into a talent strategy, or we can be the complete HR department uh, for you. One of the things Brian was talking about earlier um, was employees self-reporting what, what they believe to be EOC discrimination violations. One of the reasons why so many companies come to us for HR is that an employee might not feel comfortable, even if they have internal HR staff, because they know that their boss has a pretty close personal relationship with the HR manager. They just might not feel that they're gonna get the level of confidentiality they need. When you, when you survey employees, it's pretty clear they prefer to have a third party uh, uh, outsourced HR resources that, that they can go to uh, because they believe it's an uh, unbiased opinion. So whether you want us to be your complete HR function, uh, fractional, uh, uh, or, or, or partner with your own staff, uh, we have a model that can work for you. So with that, uh, thanks everyone for joining today. Brian, thanks for joining me again. Really enjoyed the conversation. As always, Mike, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, happy to be here. All right, everybody have a great week and we will talk to you next week.